I'll go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you that uh, we have an opportunity again to turn to your word today, that we can set a day aside where we can enjoy you and enjoy what it is you have to teach, Lord. And we do so turning to a portion of scripture that is full of pain and suffering and anguish and depression and anxiety and, and just being overwhelmed with life. So many of us here uh, have either been in that situation, some of us may even be in that situation now, Lord, and I pray that uh, what Job went through wouldn't be in vain, that it would be used even today to help us know and understand you and understand life as well. For those of us who don't see these things, Lord, I pray that we'll have an opportunity to learn the proper way to comfort and the proper way to come alongside that we would all learn humility today, Lord, that we would learn that none of us has all the answers and that none of us can see what you can see. And ultimately, Lord, that you are the one who reigns on high and oversees everything we do and knows and understands the reasons and the causes and ultimately have your glory in mind in achieving all things on this earth, Lord. And that in achieving your glory, Lord, you do it through your goodness. That even when your wrath and, and even when your, your righteous judgment comes to bear, Lord, behind it is a good and faithful God and King. And that all of us can rest in that. Pray these things in your son's name. Who Those things were manifested more than in any other time in history, even then in Job's own life. Amen. So we're in Job, and we covered Job 1 and 2, most of 2 last time, and we saw the life that, that Job had completely crushed and taken from him. His possessions, his animals, his flocks, um, his servants, even his own children, all taken from him because of basically it's not really a bet god wasn't betting satan hey i bet if you hurt job he won't curse me it was god telling satan this isn't he's not going to curse me he's a righteous man and and satan believing he could get him to do it and then after job withstood having everything taken from him, he then, Satan then asked to actually afflict Job himself. And Job, when we left him, is covered in these incredibly painful sores, weeping and crying out in his pain to the point where he's not even recognizable. And still he will not curse God. And we ended with his wife saying, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job saying, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? So in all that, Job didn't sin with his lips. And that again is up to that point, Job and his friends do not understand what is going on. They are, they are not aware of what took place in heaven. They aren't aware of what is going on with God and why God is doing this and why God is allowing this to happen to Job. 
that this isn't from the hand of God, this is actually from the hand of Satan, but ultimately it is showing, it is testing Job in the way that you test something to see if it's pure, in the way you put metal into the fire to see what it really is made of. Job is being tested here. They don't see that. And so they are going to try and deal with this. This is going to be so severe that they're going to try and deal with what is going on in Job's life and why has this occurred. And that's something each one of us deals with when we have hardships in our own lives. We deal with what have I done or why, why is it that God has brought this into my life? And, and certainly before we sin, there are times when we think to ourselves, if I sin, what will the consequences be that God will bring about in my life? And we see that taking place here now as Job and his friends deal with this. So Job 2.11, then Job's three friends heard of all this calamity that has come upon him. So they came one from each his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to console him and to comfort him. And then they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. These are, these are grown men. These are men who have achieved in great things in their life and they would be respected. Job himself, probably above them in the respect that he deserves and the wisdom that they would have felt they had. And Job's situation is so severe that all they can do is sit around and weep. They tear their robes, they cover their heads in dust. Job's sitting in ashes for his own comfort, still though crying out in pain. So just to set the scene, which is what has happened up through the first two chapters, it's like a narrator has set the scene for a great play that's about to take place. And he's introduced all the characters now and the situation that they're in and why they're in their situation. They don't fully understand it. And now that the characters are going to start their lines, this is, this is before, well, from, from this point until until Shakespeare, there's no greater tragedy that's penned in literature anywhere, certainly in the Western world. And this would rival Hamlet. In fact, if you look at some of the soliloquies in Hamlet, they, they line up with what Job and his friends are going to say in their, their assessment of life and their assessment of death and, and what it's all for. And it's an amazing piece of literature, and, and that makes us turn to this, because when we look at Scripture, one of the things we have to do is we have to look at, well, what type of literature are we dealing with? Because we have to know not only what does this say, but what does this say uh, to the people that are actually reading it? You know, when you take Scripture, you look at the verse, and you look at it, the context in the chapter that it sits in, or in the, the, the paragraph that it sits in, and then you look at the chapter, and then you look at the whole book, and how does that book fit in? But one of those steps, you, you look and see, well, what type of literature are we dealing with? We've had a very literal narrative in the first two chapters of this book, and now we're moving into uh, basically poetry, or even you could even argue that this is a play that's being put on. That's not to lessen what it is that's being said here, but 
I am going to venture to guess that Job and his friends all spoke these ideas and gave their thoughts. And these thoughts are recorded, but these thoughts are recorded as poetry. And so not that they would say these words word for word, but instead that this is recorded, that basically their thoughts are written down in a poetic way. We obviously don't have the original language here. And to be honest, we aren't even sure what the original language was. Job was written at a time, probably around the time of Abraham, maybe a little before or a little after. Um, not, this isn't one of Abraham's descendants, most likely. And so this would be um, someone descended from a different line, probably a Semitic line, um, in the area where, if you remember Moses, when Moses kills the Egyptian and runs off for 40 years into the wilderness, um, this book seems to be talking about that area down near that wilderness where Abraham or where Moses' in-laws are from. So we don't have that type of poetry here where we know the meter and the rhyme that would have been present, but it is a, a form of poetry that we're seeing. It's not to diminish at all what's in here. This is, this is holy scripture. The words that are in here do, in fact, carry with them extreme weight, but you have to be very careful with them now. Because when we get to the end of this, who gets rebuked by God? Out of these four characters, Job and his three friends, who all gets rebuked by God? Job does. What about his friends? Yeah, they do too. They all get rebuked by God. And so they get rebuked by God for some of their thoughts that they have. So one of my, one of my, it's not really a pet peeve, but one of the things I find really interesting is when you quote Job. Because when you quote a verse out of Job from chapter three up to where God's gonna speak, you need to understand that you're quoting from a text from a section of a text that God is judged as being, that's not right. <laughs> but we're going to see there are things that each one of these men say that are right, that are in fact true about God and about the way he deals with people. So you have to be very careful with this text just because of the type of text it is. And I just say that uh, to maybe help you when, you when you read these things, just to be very careful about what exactly you're pulling out of it. And we'll see some examples of that here shortly. But just understand, and I realize it, it's kind of getting to the end before we get there, each one of these individuals is going to have to answer for attitudes they had that were bad through this as we study what they're saying. Job is not perfect here in his assessment, and we'll point that out as it's occurring um, even though all four of them have some right ideas about who God is. This presents a, a special challenge as we cover this section, and um, it, that challenge is in that teaching Job. Uh, I'd like to teach it as poetry. Um, I'd like to be able to teach it as in the big sections that we find it in. And I think that's probably the best way to do it. But that's, a, that's not a typical Sunday school class where you take a section and you break it down and you show what the thoughts and ideas are and, and, and then learn from them. Instead, we're going to be taking some large 
sections that cover a single thought and idea, and I'll try and and give you that. So this will be a little bit different, and, and I'm not exactly sure how long it'll take us to get through it. So we're going to see this morning. Could be interesting. But let's start with, with Job 3. So this is, the, this is the situation. It's all been given to us now. The narrator has spoken and set the stage, and now we're actually into the play. And the first character that's, that's speaking here is Job himself. So, so Job 3 and verses 1 through 10, the picture you're going to be given is that Job is cursing the very day he was born. There in verse 1, afterward Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job answered and said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a man is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God seek it from above, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and shadow and death redeem it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of day terrify it. As for that night, let thick darkness take it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of the twilight be darkened. Let it Hope for light, but have none, and let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's body or hide trouble from my eyes. There's this, this, even the day of his birth, he's like, if only that didn't happen. If only, he's basically saying, if only I never existed. There's an interesting turn there of a phrase in verse eight, let those who curse it, or let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse Leviathan. So that's a picture of those who would go out and fight Leviathan. Does anyone, okay, we all know Leviathan is coming. This is the first mention of Leviathan. Leviathan is this amazing sea creature that man cannot do anything and, uh, to, to actually penetrate its heavy armor, its heavy cloak. And here we have the first mention of it. And he's saying, even those who go out to try and pick a fight with Leviathan. These are the bravest of the brave and the dumbest of the dumb. You just picture these like Viking characters out there on the sea trying to attack the sea monster that no one has ever been able to come close to. Even those people who have seen the worst of battle are ready to curse this day. No one wants to see this day. Even the bravest of the brave who know every kind of death and horror are ready to curse this day because this was the day that Job was born. And he keeps going, uh, cursing the life he was granted even at birth or even before or, or right after birth. In verse 11, why did I not die from the womb? Come forth from the womb and breathe my last. Why did the knees receive me and why the breasts that I should suck? For now, I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept then. It would have been rest to me with kings and with counselors of the earth who built waste places for themselves or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver? Or why was I not like a miscarriage hidden away as infants that never saw light? There the wicked cease from raging and there the weary of strength are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master." It's really the depth of, de de of despair and depression. When we evaluate a patient for depression in the clinic, 
Uh, we talk to them about how they're dealing with things in their day-to-day life, and, and one of the things we worry about is, well, where, where do you feel, what do you feel about being alive? Because we want to be sure that someone's not suicidal. This is like the last step before suicidal, is not feeling that there's any worth to go on living. And this isn't the 110-year-old who's like, why doesn't God just take me? And actually, that starts happening in their 80s. So, like an 88 year old saying, I'm done. I'm ready for the Lord to take me. I'm not sure why I'm still here. This is, this is just short of wanting to take my own life, wishing my own life had never even existed. And there's some, there's some great analogies he's giving here and a great understanding that Job has that it is true that in death, everyone is made equal. That, that, the kings and the counselors, the wisest people of the earth, those that build these huge places, those who, whether they have a ton of gold, a ton of silver, or whether they're a slave, whether they're those who, who have had to work their whole life, or even the wicked, everyone gets to rest when they're dead. This tells you the point of despair that Job is at. His life has gotten that bad. He's saying all people end up dead no matter what they've done in their life. So why didn't I just start there? When I look at my life, wouldn't it have better if I just started there? And he continues in the rest of the chapter. Why is light given to him who is troubled? A life to the bitter soul who long for death but there is none. And dig for it more than hidden treasures. Who are glad with joy and rejoice when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man to those to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my roaring pours out like water. For the dread that I dread comes upon me, and what I am afraid of befalls me. I am not complacent, nor am I quiet, and I'm not at rest, and raging comes. You get this picture about how hard life can actually be for someone who's in suffering. And you're even given that picture of, at the end there, 24 through 26, it's beyond depression. It's, it's a depression that's associated with an anxiety about everything that's coming upon him, and he just can't take anymore, and he isn't sure where the next blow is going to come. What more could befall me? I will tell you, people, this is the existence for some people. This is the existence for some of your friends. This is what they actually feel and they see. Some of you have felt these feelings. Some of you know what it is to wonder, why was I even born? Job, who was the greatest man of his time on so many levels, is dealing with this very issue. Don't believe for one minute that if you have dealt with this, that that's somehow a sin that you're dealing with. Or, boy, if I was only stronger, if I only had a better upbringing, if I only had better education or more knowledge, I wouldn't experience these things. Job experienced them. Job had all those things, all those advantages, and he's experiencing. Now, Job also is suffering far more than I've heard anyone on this world suffer since. But it still pushes him to that point, to that depression, to the point where he questions why it is, was I even born Questions why it is God has even put him there. 
It's also important to note of what's going on right now. Job, as the narrator gave us in the first two chapters, is in the midst of this suffering. And when you're in the midst of the affliction, you will cry out and you will say things that, that you'll look back on and, and they, are not, they are not proper, they are not good, they are not true. And your heart just can't see through those clouds. You can't make your way through the fog of the depression and see what it is that is right and what it is that God is doing. Poor Job here doesn't know why God has afflicted him or allowed the affliction to occur. In his mind, God is afflicting him directly. And Job is unclear as to why. And that's, that's really the source He's separated from a knowledge of how God works and what God does, and that's why we're in Job. That's the main reason my heart said we should study Job, is so that as a shepherd looking over the sheep, wanting you to know that when you are going through these things, how important it is for you to know that God has a plan, that he is good, that he does care, and that he is reaching out, and he is available to you. Job has that cut off right now. He doesn't have the understanding. He didn't have the book of Job to turn to and know. So when you see people who are in this level of despair, understand that it is something that is associated with the immediate situation, especially when that's the case, that it's something that they do need care for and they do need to be lifted up. You do need to do what his three friends did and sit with them and listen to them and bemoan with them. The three friends get a bad rap, I think, but understand they sat with him for a week, silent, which is sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody who's in this state. Sit with them, be silent, be near them, be willing to listen to their, their moanings and their, their concerns, their loss and their pain. But you also need to see the hand of God and not assume you know it. And that's where their, his friends are about to go wrong. So I'd love to say Job is innocent in chapter 3. So far we haven't seen it. He's not seeing clearly everything going on, not through his own fault necessarily, but not having a right understanding of God. Then we turn to the first response. Another character is introduced in this play, and we have Eliphaz, and he's going to respond to Job. To, to what Job has said in chapter 3. This isn't a response to seeing Job in pain and everything he suffered up through chapter 2. This is a response to what Job has just spoken. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one tries a word with you, will you become weary? But who can hold back from speaking? Behold, you have disciplined many and you have strengthened limp hands. Your words have helped the stumbling to stand and you have encouraged feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? So we have here that Eliphaz, what a, what a, great, what a great verse to memorize. Verse 6, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? When somebody's faltering and they're willing to do something that isn't, isn't the right thing or they're responding wrongly in response to being harmed or hurt by somebody else, wouldn't it be great to have come out of your lips? Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? It's a great thing to say. But what's going on here is that Eliphaz is going to get, launch into the idea that 
a response not unlike what mine would be, because Job is saying, why in the world do bad things happen to good people? Has anyone ever asked that? All of you should raise your hands, but we're not a charismatic church, so you won't. I get that. And Eliphaz is going to launch into, well, bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And guess what? We're all bad. Has anyone ever had that thought towards somebody? I have. I've said that out loud to somebody, and I will receive punishment for it someday. It's not a good attitude to have, but that's the attitude he's taken here. He's assuming that Job himself has done something bad. And verses two through six is Eliphaz. Now understand, again, Eliphaz has sat with him for a week and he hears Job's lament about wishing he had never been born and, or that death is better than to go on living. And he's like, whoa, Job, you're the one who has been advising everybody over all these years and you're the strong one here. And now you've just rejected everything you've ever taught. You need to be realigned with what it means to suffer and why suffering occurs. Don't give up on everything you already know. In 7 through 11, he's going to point out to Job, you reap what you sow, and that is by the hand of God. So verse 7, remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright wiped out? According to what I have seen, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the wind of his anger they come to an end. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. So again, we're given this picture that the, the, the powerful in the world, when they do wickedness, they face God, and God can deal with everyone. Even the lions, God is able to come in, and God is able to recompense justice when they do wrong. So he continues this argument there in 12 through 21. Now a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me in trembling and made the multitudes of my bones shake in dread. Then a spirit swept by my face, the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mankind be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his slaves, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord pulled up within them? They die yet without wisdom. And again, the poetry here, I just want to touch on. This is a terror that comes upon Eliphaz. He's describing what's happening here is that ultimately he's going to realize you can't be right before God. You're man. You're a fragile human being who not only is fragile in the fact that we're made of clay and we die, 
But we're also fragile in the fact that we can't do perfect righteousness all the time and we serve a righteous God. And this picture in verses 12 through 16 is the fact here's a man who's gone through life and has tried and has tried to be a righteous person, to be a good person. And all of a sudden in the night, this, this thought creeps in and, and basically the picture is it stands up beside him. This spirit comes beside him and he realizes it's there and facing the realization, he sees that even doing everything I can possibly do, I can't stand before a righteous God. None of us can. He even, there was even a time when the angels themselves were judged and the angels are far above us. The angels can actually go into the holy places in heaven and even they couldn't stand. What, what chance do we have? And to relate that back to Job is, Job, you're going through all these things. Don't you understand? None of us are perfect. The reason bad things happen to you, Job, is because you're a bad person. And it'd be nice if he stopped there, but he doesn't. He continues on. Chapter 5, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For vexation kills the arrogant fool, ignorant fool, and jealousy puts to death the simple. I've seen the ignorant fool taking root, and I cursed his abode suddenly. His sons are far from salvation, and even crushed in the gate, and there's no deliverer. The harvest, his harvest the hungry devour, and take it to a place of thorns, And the schemer pants after their wealth, for wickedness does not come out from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, for man is born for trouble, and the sparks fly upward. What a wonderful picture of the fact that starting there in in verse 6, wickedness doesn't just happen. In our culture today, we talk about the innocent of children, and children all have to be taught to sin, Right? The only way your kids know to lie or steal or, or talk back to you or um, treat other people with disrespect is if they're taught. Otherwise, they wouldn't have. No, that's not how. It doesn't just spring up from the dust. Trouble doesn't just sprout from the ground with no seed planted. This man is born for trouble isn't that man is born and trouble falls upon him. That wouldn't make sense based on the two verses before. It's man is born and you know what? He's the cause of the trouble and sparks fly everywhere. You go over to Eastern Europe right now and we see that. Man is going, there's going to be trouble as long as there is man. As long as there is mankind, this is what happens. He's explaining to Job, this is why people like you have problems, Job. It's why any of us have problems. And he gives them some advice. But as for me, I would seek God and I would set my cause before God who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields outside so that he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to salvation. He frustrates the thoughts of the crafty so that their hands cannot attain success of sound wisdom. He catches the wise by their own craftiness and the counsel of the twisted he quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. He, but he saves from the sword of their mouth and the needy from the hand of the strong. So the poor has hope and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. What a wonderful thing that he says about God there. And it's all true, by the way. 
as a principle of what God does, right? But we also know that that isn't how it always works out, is it? But he is speaking truth about who God is, just as he spoke truth in verses one through seven about why calamity comes and why men are in trouble, why men have strife. It's not that, that he doesn't understand. Well, we'll, we'll keep going. It'll, keep, it'll make itself clear. So he's given him some good advice about turning to God. He is the only hope in verses 8 through 16. And he's a good God. 17 through 24 then. Behold, how blessed is the man who God reproves. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. For he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six distresses he will deliver you, and in seven evil will not touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from hands with swords. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you will not be afraid of devastation when it comes. You will laugh at devastation and starvation. You will not be afraid of the beast of the earth. For your covenant will be with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is at peace, and you will... Visit your abode and fear no loss. You will know also that your seed will be many and your offspring as the vegetation of the land. You will come to the grave in full vigor like the stacking of grain in its season. Behold this, we have investigated it and it is, and so it is. Hear it and know it for yourself. He's encouraging Job that what you're experiencing is discipline from God. That's where he's wrong. Job is not being disciplined by God. Job was actually lifted up by God. So he's wrong in making that assumption. And now he's going to take that wrong assumption and imply some truths about who God is and the way the world works to a wrong assumption. That is where the issue lies. And that's why you have to be careful when you use Job. For even even Eliphaz has some great comments and some great teaching for Job and for all of us. God disciplines those he loves and he's able to restore them. It would be wise whenever you find yourself in a bad situation to examine your heart and say, is there sin in my life? Do I have a strained relationship with my family member because I'm being a jerk to them? That would be wise. It would be very wise. And if that's so, repent and ask God to forgive and ask him to restore. That's not bad advice. He's just not aware of what's actually happening in the background. What's really kind of amazing here is if you read 24 through 27, he is describing, again, we all kind of, I assume everyone's read Job and knows how this ends, right? Okay, so he's describing what will happen to Job in the end here. What he's saying is so true, and it is how God is going to to repay Job. Job is going to receive back everything he lost and then some. And he's going to have this one. This is probably the best picture I have ever heard of uh, how we all want to be in our old age when we die. When you come to the grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in in its seasons, like, like... I want to, I, I, I often tell patients, you're, you're going to have one or two things happen. Your body's going to give out and you're going to have a very good mind. Or your mind's going to give out and your body's going to be very good. But very rarely do you get them both, where 
your mind and your body were in exile. This is in old age. This isn't young people. This does happen to young people. In old age, very rarely do you have both wear out simultaneously. That's a blessing. Or both are fully there. You're 92 years old. You still are taking care of yourself at home and doing everything great. And you go to bed one night and don't wake up in the morning. That's the picture of this is. This is giving the picture of coming to your grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in its season, like a harvest. My life has been harvested. Here's everything I've accomplished. Boom, here's the big um, sheaf of grain standing up in the barn, done. Isn't that a great picture of how all of us, I think, want to grow old and die? I I think it's a beautiful picture. So he's giving Job wisdom here. He's actually telling him things that are true. Don't assume because you know the scriptures and you know the truth of wisdom that you know and understand how this world works that you're a really good counselor. There's a really good chance you're not because you don't fully understand everything going on in the person's life. Eliphaz just demonstrated that for us. He gave a bunch of truth, but it's it's misaimed. He could give all that truth to somebody who had sinned greatly and God is punishing. That's not what's going on here. He's assuming, and ultimately he's assuming on God. So Job 6, that's why Job responds in verse 6 with a cry about his innocence. Job answers and said, Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my destruction. For then it would be heavier on the, than the sands of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The horrors of God have arraigned against me. Does a wild donkey bray over his grass or does the ox low for his, over his fodder? Can something tasteless be eaten without salt or is there any taste in the slime of a yoke? My soul refuses to touch them. They are loathsome food to me. Job is overwhelmed by the disasters. He sees there from the hand of God and his reaction is not without cause. It's the natural response. Just as, just as uh, a donkey isn't gonna bray wanting food when his grass is right in front of him or an ox low when his, when his trough is full of fodder, he's not, he's not crying out in anguish and in pain over nothing. Job has made the same mistake that Eliphaz has. Job has assumed that you get punished like this when you do bad and he's done no bad, but it's still God doing the punishing. It'd be nice if Job had a, had a better understanding of what was going on. He doesn't. God has chosen not to give him that. And his response is, is wrong, just like Eliphaz's is. He's making assumptions that are not true. <clears throat> but let's give him some slack. He's, this is the natural reaction to what he's going through. Verse eight, oh, that my request might come to pass and that God would grant me hope. Would that God were willing to, that hope, by the way, is to cut him off. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would release his hand and cut me off. But it is still my comfort and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not at all hidden away the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones or my flesh bronze? Is is that there is no help within me? 
and that the success of sound wisdom is driven from me. Job here is, is making clear that, that he still would like to just die, but he rejoices the one thing he's held on to are the words of the Holy One. He's, he's trying to maintain a righteous life. He's trying to be a man of integrity. He's not going to just curse God and die. But he's not understanding. His, he doesn't understand why God is doing what he is doing at this time in his life. He just doesn't get it. And he's saying that his strength isn't going to last forever. He's not a stone that can just sit there and take it. His flesh isn't made out of bronze. He can't just carry this burden forever. Then in verse 14, For the despairing man, loving kindness should be from his friend, but he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have betrayed me like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis. Wait, we should probably say what a wadi is. Um, they're going to be prominent here. They're like these little streams that run through, um, almost like a barren land or, or a, um, a wilderness. And when the rains come, those fill up with water. And then just as quickly as they fill up without the rain, they aren't spring fed. They aren't fed by snow melting somewhere per se. It's just when the rains go and then all of a sudden these will dry up and there's nothing left there. So my brothers have betrayed me like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which pass away, which grow dark because of ice and upon the snow hides itself. When they become waterless, they are silent and it is hot. They vanish from their place. The paths of their course wind along. They go into a formless place and perish. The caravans of Tima looked. The travelers of Sheba hoped for them. They were ashamed for they had trusted. They came there and were humiliated. Indeed, you have now become such. You see a terror and are afraid. Have I said, give me something or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or give me escape from the hand of the adversary or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless man? So we've seen that, that their response to him, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm actually innocent and you as my friends should be coming alongside me, but instead you're accusing me of a guilt that isn't there. And, and yeah, it's great you sat with me for seven days, but now, now everything's dried up and, and when I look for, to you guys for encouragement, it's like these travelers who say, yeah, there's a stream right over this next rise and they get there and the stream's all dried up. I have nothing. And then it's an interesting statement he makes here in 22 and 23. He's basically saying, I'm not asking you to lie to me and tell me I'm a good person. I'm not saying, you know, yeah, I totally agree with you, Job. You're a good guy. This shouldn't happen to you. God's bad. If you don't think that's true, don't, don't lie about it. I, I still want you to tell me truth. Be a good advisor to me. Be willing to tell me if I'm wrong. But I'm telling you, I am, in fact, innocent. And that's what 24 through 30 instruct me, and I will be silent and, and cause me to understand how I have erred. How painful are upright words. But what does your reproof prove? Do you think to reprove my words or think the words of one in despair is wind? You would even cast lots for the orphans and bargain over your friends. So now be willing to face me and see if I lie to your face. Now turn from this. Let there be no unrighteousness. Even turn from this. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there unrighteousness in my tongue? Can my palate discern destruction? 
So he's saying to them, look, I, I am in fact innocent. And the judgment you're giving, understand, you're judging me for the words I'm using while I'm in terrible pain after losing everything but my wife in my life, and she told me to die. I'm in a bad way here, guys. You can't take all my words as, as harshly as you're taking them. Understand my position, but also understand, I don't see where I've sinned. You're my friends. Trust me. Believe me that this is true. And then he launches there in chapter 7 on, on a statement about man's place in earth. Is not man conscripted to labor on earth and are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade and as a hired man who eagerly hopes for his wages, so am I apportioned months of worthlessness and nights of trouble are appointed me. If I lie down, if I, lie down I say, when shall I rise? But the twilight continues and I am shattered with tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin scabs over and flows out again. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. So again, he turns back to the futility that he sees in his life now, certainly since all this has happened to him. It starts with this, this idea that life is hard and then you die. And in the middle there, there's that graphic dis- picture of the decaying of his own flesh that is currently going on. Remember, he's currently covered in sores, and this is a description it's also a description of, of death itself. He's, he's alive, but his body is actively dying on his bones. Just a graphic picture of the decay that takes place after you die, and he's experiencing as he sits there. Just to remind them, everything he just said about, I'm innocent, I need your help, I want to be able to rely on you guys, and now I can't. And this is how useless thing is things are to me right now what is interesting in verses one and two isn't that the cost of the fall man is conscripted to labor on the earth and his days are like the days of a hired man a slave who pants for shade and a hired man who eagerly hopes for his wages i had a conversation with a man who's um wealthier than anybody here um self-made man uh and uh, pretty, pretty amazing story. And he's like, I have a million dollars in $100 bills in my safe at my house. So why do you have that? And he's like, well, just wanted to try it. It's like, well, okay, sounds good. He sold his 40 cars. He's down to like three. And, and he's like, it's all worthless. It's all truly worthless. He says, I'm, I'm giving away as much as I can to my kids now. And, and my wife has Parkinson's and we can't go anywhere. We can't do anything now. We can't travel like we'd hoped to. And he sees that, that helplessness in his situation of where life is. And, and so often our lives do, as, as Job accurately points out, again, this isn't Job, Job who is going to get reprimanded at the end of this by God. This is a true statement about what life is. But understand, why is life that way? Well, it's because man sinned in the garden and we all sinned in Adam 
And one of the punishments was that life was now going to be hard. You're going to have to labor to get anything from the earth. And, and Job is, is making note of that and seeing it. And you add that on top of the struggles he's going through, and it's just overwhelming to him. And I just point out to you that, that again, when you have somebody, when you yourself are in the dumps, when you're dealing with somebody who's dealing with depression, understand it's not just the depression over what's actively going on. Very often they're, a keen, they're keenly aware to the other things in life that make life seem futile. They don't see the hope. And it's not a terrible time to take them back and say, yeah, you're absolutely right about how futile and difficult life can be. Because you know what? Genesis 3, way back at the beginning, it tells us that that's how it's going to be. You're very perceptive. But Genesis 3 also gave us hope that there's a seed and that seed is going to someday crush and reverse everything and will reign on the earth. And everything that you see that should happen, that's not happening, will happen. It's one of the reasons I am very much a premillennialist. Somehow we're on premillennialism in Job 7. One of the reasons I am a premillennialist is because it has to work in the end. If it doesn't, why? Why are we here? Why do we suffer? Why does God continually allow the earth to be subjugated to the curse of sin if he is not planning to restore it to where it once was and put the rightful king in his place and he will judge with all justice and righteousness? An exciting thing. And that's what you can give people who are dealing not only with their individual suffering and pain, but also seeing just the general suffering and pain that all of us go through. So just bear that in mind as we read now 7 through 10. Remember that my life is but wind, my eye will not see good. The eye of him who sees me will, no, will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. This is Job speaking of his, of his death, of what it's like when you die. A cloud vanishes and it is gone, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return to his house again, nor will his place recognize him anymore. No matter how much we remember somebody for being a great person after they die, they are gone and their influence is, is less. Your influence doesn't go up as you die. There's an occasional person in history that people rally around their memory and um, it, it produces some good after their death. But as a general rule, that's not the case. Those are the exceptions that prove the rule, if anything. In 11 through 21, we see that Job does not see the cause that God has treated him so miserably in his mind. Again, he sees that this is all from the hand directly from God. Indeed, I will not hold back my mouth. I will speak in the distress of my spirit. I will muse on the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me, you being God? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my bitter musing, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I've rejected everything. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him or that you set your heart on him, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spit? 
Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not forgive my transgression or take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me earnestly, but I will not be. It's important to note there that Job admits that he's a man who has iniquity. He has transgressions. He has faults. Take that back to chapter one where God calls him a righteous man. Clearly that didn't mean he's a righteous man with no fault. It meant that his, his reputation and his overall overarching personality, his overarching persona was one of being a righteous man as we are all to strive and achieve to do, to be righteous. Again, we see this, this, this picture of anxiousness that he has that, that he can find no rest, believing that if he could just find comfort, that would be enough. But so often, anxiety and depression do go hand in hand. And then, interesting again, What is man that you magnify him in verse 17 and that you set your heart on him, that you examine him with every moment and test, or every morning and test him every moment. There's that whole, what is man that thou art mindful of him or son of man that thou dost regard him, which is a positive thought that's in scripture. I think it's in Psalms, Proverbs. I'm gonna forget. What's that? Psalm, yeah. Yes. This is different. This is what is man that you sit there with your magnifying glass and just with the sun. Why, God? Why do you examine? You know you're going to find fault. You know that if you actually examined each and every one of us, none of us would be able to stand and all of us would be worthy of destruction. Why? Why do you do this? This is the depth of despair that he has, that the thought of the Almighty is no longer a comfort to him, but it is bringing him anxiety and stress because he doesn't understand what's going on. You should feel incredibly sympathetic to Job at this point. And you just want him to say, Job, don't you understand what happened back in one and two? And he doesn't. He doesn't see it. He doesn't know it. Poor Job. All right, Job 8. Then Bildad, we have our third character. Bildad believes God is just, Job is suffering. Therefore, God must be justly punishing him. If God is just Job, and Job is suffering, that there must be a connection between those two. Bildad the Shuite answered and said, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your son sins against him, then he sent them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God earnestly and plead for the grace of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, indeed, now he would rouse himself for you and make your righteous abode at peace. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Again, some foreshadowing of what's about to happen. Please ask of past generations and establish the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you and bring forth words of their hearts? What great advice. Let's be honest, that's great advice. Don't just look at your situation. How about you look back at the, the, 
the centuries that came before you. How do these things work, Job? Don't trust your own wisdom of the contemporary times. Look back in time. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh or the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it dries up before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust a spider web. He relies on his house and does not and it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it is not established. He thrives before the sun, and his shoots go forth over his garden. His roots wrap around a rock pile. He looks upon a house of stones. If he swallows him up from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the dust others will spring. So you build everything up, and God is perfectly capable of knocking it down, is what he's saying. And it will bring him no greater joy than to knock it down and then out of the dust raise up somebody else's house. If he swallows him up from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the dust others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor will he strengthen the hand of the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. Chapter 8 is a good place to stop because we ask ourselves, does God ever reject a blameless man? Or does he ever strengthen the hand? Does he ever allow the hand of the evildoer to win, to prosper? Win. Okay, right now. We see it right now. Think bigger picture. Think simple son. I'll ask the children. When did God punish a righteous man? Yeah, Jesus. That's a, that's a Sunday school answer. Always say Jesus. Right? God does, in fact, allow a righteous man to be punished. There's a greater thing going on than what we see and feel in our lives. But if anything, these first eight chapters of Job should show you that while there are greater things going on in our lives, what we do experience is in fact painful and is in fact, can in fact lead to depression, can in fact lead to anxiety. That we as individuals, as, as we're seeing here, when you come alongside somebody, don't assume you know and understand everything going on any more than the person in it has a full understanding of what is going on. To the uninitiated, seeing the one who they thought was the Messiah dying on the cross must have been a terrible defeat. And how in the world could there be a God that allows such a thing? or even bring such a thing about as Jesus told Pilate, look, you're doing this not because of your own will, but because you were put here to do this. So just understand that sometimes you don't have all the insight that you need and comfort is important. I hate to leave us here, but there's no way to treat all of Job in one sitting. So next time we get a break from Daniel, we'll continue on. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word and for your son that uh, maybe Job gives us a better idea of how it is you were pleased to crush your son, how that makes sense, Lord. Lord, we rejoice as we're gonna learn later in Job that your ways are higher than our ways and your wisdom is far beyond anything we can see and understand because we do not have your perspective. 
and it causes us to tremble and it causes us to worship you as, as we have the opportunity to do today, Lord. I pray that those who are suffering will find rest in that worship of you, both through hearing your word preached and singing of songs and the reading of scripture and the praying as a corporate body as we are allowed to do, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would be lifted high and above all things in Job, for that's the lesson you're going to teach these men, is that you are high and worthy to be worshiped and lifted above all men. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.